Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 29. If you use Python, then you probably have used pip to install additional packages from the Python package index. Part of the magic behind pip is the dependency resolver, and there's a new version of it in the latest version of pip. This week on the show, we have Sumana Harihorashara and Georgia Bullen who have been working on the recent releases of PIP. Sumana is the project manager for PIP, and Georgia has been working on PIP's user experience, or UX. Resolver is how PIP determines what to install, and in what order, based on package requirements. We talk about how you can help, from updating to the latest release, testing out the new Resolver with your projects, and answering surveys about your experiences. A ton of work has gone into making the updates this year. We also talk about the funding of projects like this in the open source community. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. I want to welcome you both to the show. Hi, Georgia. Hi. And hi, Sumana. Hey there, Christopher. Thank you so much for having us. You guys kind of reached out about a month ago to talk to me about some updates in what's happening with the, the PIP project and some of the new releases. I know a, another group of people were on Brian Aachen's show, Test and Code, and they were talking about a slightly earlier release in June. What's going on with PIP right now that you guys wanted to come on the show and talk to us about? Well, I'm happy to go into that. First, I want to give a little bit of a brief introduction to what PIP is and why it's important. Sure. Because there might be people who are listening to the show who are very new to Python or who have been using it but haven't really thought about what it is that PIP does and why it gets complicated. Now, a computer needs to know what order to fetch and install pieces of software, right? If you're going to try and install a piece of software that somebody else wrote, then it needs to know, okay, to install X, you need to install Y first. So, for instance in order to install a complicated application, right? it might depend on some library that's underlying it or some set of libraries, and this is very common. So to share software, programmers have to precisely describe those installation prerequisites. And when a user's installation tools have to figure out how to download, or, you know, retrieve and install a piece of software onto a local machine, that can get a little bit more complicated because in case in this case, PIP, the official Python package download and install tool, if it receives conflicting or complex instructions, it can be difficult to make appropriate trade-offs, right, of what did the user expect here, backwards and forwards compatibility, performance, reproducibility, and stuff like this. And this is a particular problem for users of Python, partly because Python is an ecology where there's a lot of different tools and, uh, that have grown organically, right, mostly have been built by volunteers over time. The, it was volunteers who developed the code behind the Python package index, right? It was volunteers who wrote PIP, the download install tool. There are various tools some of your listeners might know about, which are useful for uploading, packaging, and distributing 
packages, not just to the Python package index, pypi.org, pypi, but also maybe to other local indexes, right? You know, within an enterprise or someplace else or something like that. So there's a tool called Wheel, there's a tool called Setup Tools, there's a tool called Twine. And these are independent code bases that chain together into a tool chain. And some people these days use PipPip as the official and supported tool, but for a long time, there were other things that we're not going to go into. They're, they're obsolete and people should not be using them, like easy install, easy underscore install. Sure. Right? That was an old way of, of installing packages. And these days, uh, we recommend PIP. But PIP has to you know, find out, you've typed in, for instance, PIP install beautiful soup four. Right. So PIP needs to figure out what do you mean by beautiful soup four, right? What did you just type in? Do you mean something on the Python package index or did you maybe add some additional flags that mean, no, no, I, or, or maybe you have a configuration file that means when you say beautiful soup four, you mean something from some other index or you're actually referring to some local file or something like that. Uh, I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but it has to figure out what did you mean? What do you want me to install? It needs to retrieve that from wherever it is. So it might need to make a network request. It needs to download the file. And I'm, I'm oversimplifying here, right? And there's some stuff in uh, pip.pypa.io that's a, an architecture overview that tells you a lot more about what it's doing in each of these steps. And it needs to then install that on your system. And if it has installed, if the thing that it downloaded was a binary file that is already appropriate to your architecture, well, then that's a little bit easier, right? It needs to stick it in the right place. But if what it got was a source distribution, which is Python code, right? Interpretable Python code. Yeah. Then it needs to compile it, right? And put it in the right place on your system as well. So, and along the way, of course, it needs to grab metadata and say, oh, wait, 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 I can't install this yet because in order to install X, I need Y first. Oh, wait, in order to install Y, I need Z for, you know, traverse that tree. And if you have said a few things in a row, because you know that you want both requests and arrow, and you typed pip install request arrow, well, it needs to make a bunch more calculations, right? And should it do that? What order should it do that in? If it just installed version 1.0 of something, wait, should it override that because you said the, you know, the second thing you wanted wants version 2.0 of some other defense? Right, there's a lot of uh, questions to answer. Sure. Right now, there's really opaque and inaccurate dependency resolution because PIP makes decisions that are wrong or hard for users to understand. And we lose a lot of time and effort. You know, you, me, anybody who uses Python usually gets to a point where you've tried to install stuff and you get into a weird situation where PIP didn't do the thing that you expected, either in the very short term and you realize it right away, or possibly it's over the course of you know months or years. You know, you have some stuff happening in a, an environment that gets all boggled up. So arrangements of dependencies that are really prone to dependency conflicts are really common. Some statistics say that at least 20% of distributions on PyPI have these potential dependency conflicts. Uh, that is to say, dependencies that place multiple non-identical constraints on the version of at least one package. 
some research shows that PIP fails to resolve dependencies for about 2% of the distributions on PyPI that have dependencies. And then, of course, when you kind of combinatorically, you know, do a bunch of stuff, then, you know, people get into very, very difficult situations. And this doesn't just lead to problems for them. Of course, people using PIP then have difficulty and they think it might be PIP's fault or they think it might be their upstream's fault and maybe they're right and maybe they're wrong, right? If you have a problem downloading and installing X and Y, it might be because Project X did something a little bit unusual in how they defined their requirements, but you don't know that because the that just sort of like laid a time bomb that only popped up when you try to install Y two months later. So you think the problem is Y. These are the kinds of problems that can show up because PIP did not have a proper dependency resolver. And we're fixing that. PIP is, is in the midst of a one-year project, and Georgia and I are two of the people working on it. So let me uh, unpack some of that to go back a little bit. We've had a, a few guests recently. Uh, Packaging has actually been kind of a theme for probably about a month or so on the show. We've been talking to a various different groups of people. I talked to Russell Keith McGee from Beware. And so we were talking about Good. his tools. We were talking about wheels. And that was something that I didn't have a ton of background on. And so we talked about how that stuff's created and the idea of the different formats of that. You know, this is all based on a real Python article recently that kind of went into that idea that mm-hmm. depending on your platform, if it's got, you know, if it's a simple Python library, then it's much easier because it, it's all Python. Versus if you're right, then it, you got to look at a Linux distribution versus a Windows distribution versus what what you have. And all of those things have to be kind of combined in there. Yeah. Right, right. If it's pure Python, right? If you're writing a pure Python application, it's very easy to compile it to run anywhere. But if you are also embedding extensions in C or in Rust then or, or some other language, then right, those uh, languages you have to also then provide ideally pre-compiled binaries. Yeah. And some people do these for performance reasons, right? TensorFlow is an example, but it sounds like you went into a lot more detail in the previous episode. Yeah, we kind of went into some of it and and you're confirming a lot of those details, which is great. And so that's good. I'm glad that I have that all of us have our stories straight. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's that's helping me a lot with, you know, kind of solidifying the, you know, what what's happening. And then what I was wondering about as you, you were kind of go, going through that is you mentioned some of the packages uh, specifically. And so this kind of got into another conversation where I was talking with Edamar. We were going through, again, a variety of ways to distribute. And we were talking about, you know, is this going to stay internal mm-hmm. inside of an organization? Or is this something that you're packaging up and you're going to try to be, you know, on the Python package authority, be part of PyPI? I'm just going to correct you there. I think you mean the Python package index. Yeah, sorry. Okay. I, you're right. I corrected it's myself okay. <laughs> right at the end trying to get there. I used to work at the Wikimedia Foundation where I supported MediaWiki, the software behind Wikipedia. Oh my gosh. And I surely messed all that up at least once a month. <laughs> like you are not alone. These are confusing names. It is not your fault. Yeah. When you let's say you are creating your own packaging and you're putting it up part of the definition of your package of are it's sort of like you know underlying dependencies and so that stuff gets defined inside there so if i was releasing a new package of something and it relies on these three different packages underneath it then i would specify in my code you know pinning down specific versions of of things that i need and I, i'm guessing that's where it really starts to kind of 
run into some of these errors and and this need for resolution. Is, am I correct in thinking that? That is that is my understanding. I just want to open this up, Georgia. Is this something that you feel like you might be interested in talking at all about? Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, I think that's an interesting question that we don't actually have data on. So that's actually part of why part of what we're doing this year is a focus overall on the usability user experience of PIP. Right. And so we're interviewing people about how they use it to better understand, like, is the issue that people are pinning things? I think one of the things that has definitely come up in the conversations about dependency resolution, you know, you might be using two packages that you don't realize both depend on the same library, but on different versions of the same other package, right? And so I don't, it might not be an issue of like pinning versions. It might be that the things you're using have pinned versions. And so it's that sort of, how do you, how do you sift through the network maze of the things that you're working with and what they're working with and all of this sort of inter interlinking concepts, right? So that's actually a lot of what we're learning about from people as we're interviewing folks and, and people are filling out some of the surveys we have open to have us better understand you know, what are the common situations that lead to people having issues? How do we account for that in the way that we give error feedback in the command line? How do we make the commands clearer or like the decisions that PIP is making clearer and make more sense for the way people expect it to work? I also want to add, Georgia is a user experience expert, right? Georgia is leading the team that is working on the user experience and usability assessment and improvements this year for Python packaging in general and PIP in particular. And so right now, they've been doing a lot of work in assessment and analysis along with based on that being able to make some recommendations. So I'm thinking about They've been doing a lot of descriptive work, right? Trying to describe the current state of the software and the current state of our users, right? What our users think and want to understand and misunderstand and so on. And then, of course, along the way and, and build, building on that, they are making some prescriptive recommendations and they can make more and more of those over time. To us, the developers of uh, to the, the team, right? behind Python packaging and to our users through documentation, error messages, and and so on. I also want to point out, I think, Christopher, part of what you're asking about is you would like some prescriptions (laughs) right now, right, of like, how should we be packaging things, especially when we need to define and specify requirements. And this is where I'm going to point you to packaging.python.org, which is the official... Python Packaging User Guide. This is really the first place anyone should go if they ever have questions about how do I do this? What's the right way to do this? And Because, hey, it's a complicated thing. We're trying to make it less complicated, but along the way, we can at least give you documentation to say, here's how to do it right now. Yeah. And in the table of contents, the first thing in there is called an overview of packaging for Python. And because there's quite a number of different things you might want to do. This overview, as it says, provides a general purpose decision tree for reasoning about Python's plethora of packaging options so that you can choose the best approach and the best technology for how to package your project appropriately. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it's good. I was looking at a lot of these resources earlier to try to get ready to talk to you guys and, and kind of learn a little more about what's happening. And, and the documentation is really great. I like that there's tutorials inside there. Also, it's very useful to kind of get up to speed. 
Yeah, I'm really grateful for all the people who have worked on packaging.python.org over the years. I want to, in particular, give a shout out to Thea Flowers, who has done so much work, not just writing individual pieces of documentation, but really bringing a vision to the whole thing um, that has been really, really invaluable. So shout out to Thea for all of her work on that. She was a guest earlier on the show, episode I think <laughs> we were talking circuit Python and um, a lot of the different projects that, that she was working on. That's great. Um, at the time, which is really cool. Yes. I wanted to talk to something that Georgia was saying that I'm intrigued about in the whole UX of it. I'm going to say that, you know, <laughs> I'm a special unicorn here and I haven't really had any issues with pip install <laughs> where I've had it get into that bunch of errors in, in trying to resolve things. Now, that might be just the particular situations that I'm in, or it might be the particular... I'm a fan of virtual environments, and so I, I typically create my projects inside them. Mm. And so I'm usually starting from scratch there, and I'm yeah. updating you know, the newest version of PIP, and then you know, PIP installing usually you know, one or two things in a row. Or if it's a project that I'm replicating, then I might be you know, using one of the requirements.txt type files that have been, you know, frozen using pip. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering about the types of errors that you're seeing. I, I know you had mentioned some numbers before that, and I, I just kind of maybe want to dive into that a little bit about the research you're, you're getting back. Yeah. Um, and I think Simona mentioned some numbers. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to, I'm going to interrupt here and just say that yeah. the numbers that I was quoting were from some research done in previous years. Okay, cool. They are not based on what Georgia and uh, her team are doing right now. Yeah, I was going to say, Sumina can speak to the numbers. <laughs> That's what I was about to say. So a lot of what we're doing is talking to people. We're doing a couple things. One, we're trying to talk to folks who are testing the resolver and understanding what problems they're running into and trying to better understand what those issues look like. So you're right. It's it's not surprising to me that you're not running into issues when you're working in virtual environments. I think that's probably one of the best ways, and my guess is the documentation <laughs> backs that up, of um, of how to make sure that you're working in a, a clean environment where you're not running into those types of issues. So I, I think that's, for folks that are working with Python packages in that way, I think that's a pretty common that you don't actually run into a lot of issues. And when we're so a lot of what we've been doing is trying to understand like when people get the really complicated dependency like thorny bushes of trying to figure out what's going on (laughs) that's something where yeah i wonder about that yeah we've actually um i think earlier this year we've had kind of an open thread or an open issue on github of basically like share us your worst dependency <laughs> um, thorn. That sounds fun. And yeah, and, and to be honest, it's hard, you know, there, I think we're sort of relieved that it doesn't seem to come up super commonly. So that's, that's a good thing, right? That means that right. things are working. That means that people are keeping packages up to date. That means that we're, people aren't running into these issues as much, but it is possible. Like we know that technically these problems are possible. So what our bigger thing is, not necessarily that PIP should end up solving it all for you, but PIP should give you the right feedback so that you can solve it easily. Yeah. Right. And that's the, it, you know, your experience tells me that the way you're using it means you're getting good feedback and everything is working. And that's great. That's ideally what we want everyone to have is their experience. Right. But, but it's not what everyone has. So how are we, you know, what are the things that are most common? What are the ways that we can address that either through improving the functionality or through improving the way the feedback is presented to you or improving the way you can get answers about how to do stuff in the documentation. Like 
what is the overall sort of experience of doing stuff and solving your own problems with PIP, if that makes sense. Yeah. I wonder about that in some senses because you're you're dealing with it, you know, it's all very command line based. And so you're limited to the type of uh, user experience that you're going to be able to present. And so yeah. what are the tools that you're applying in those cases? Yeah. I, if I may break in yeah, for, for, for just a moment, I wanted to share that, and this will, I'm sure, be in the show notes. Yeah. We have collected over the years some examples of installation conflicts and problems for Python users and in the larger ecology caused by the lack of a proper dependency resolver. Okay. In PIP, there were some things involving Django. There was a installation conflict involving CherryPy 6 and Cheroot. There was a problem involving Elasticsearch and requests. There were things affecting Captain Proto implementation, the Mozilla website and calendar, all sorts of things. Uh, and one of the things that happens is that because this issue has been open for so long, sometimes people didn't directly report it to PIP as a new issue, of course. They would talk about it in their own bug trackers, some of which are GitHub, some of which are not, right? And maybe link over and say, ah, so I guess I got to work around that, right? And so when people just assume, well, this is a problem, I have no idea when it's going to be fixed, I'm going to go work around it. It's not like they tend to send the maintainers of the tool that they're working around a heads up, you know, a card on a silver platter saying, FYI, this is one <laughs> of the things that you will fix when you eventually fix this problem, right? So sa same as, you know, imagine that there's a really bad traffic intersection. People don't send a note to the urban planners saying, I'm avoiding that intersection. They just drive around it. So we, I, I did some work when I was applying for the grant money to try to fund this effort. I will say some people do definitely report the intersection. <laughs> you would be surprised. Uh, I think that one of the issues is there's no 311, right? There's no like central hub for anyone to just complain to where then things get routed to the right place. Like, Oh, maybe that's Twitter, right? Twitter is the three one one of. No, just kidding. Uh, tw Twitter would be the three one one. Twitter is a <laughs> message board where people complain, but uh, and and say various other useful things. But three one one, as you say, one of the most important aspects of a three one one style system. Yeah. Georgia and I are both used to it living in New York. Is that you call a general line and then it does get routed fairly consistently to the right people. Yeah. We tried, uh, we have uh, the beginnings of something like that. There's a GitHub repository called packaging-problems, which is meant as a general, you report a problem where you don't know where in the Python packaging ecology it should be reported to. But if there's no consistent funded staff to help route that, do the customer service work of routing stuff to the right places, then that serves collection, but it doesn't serve for, for the routing and, and resolution. Um, so uh, what I was saying, Christopher, was that as I was gathering data to help apply for the grant money to do this work, and we want to thank the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and Mozilla Open Source Support Program for funding this, this work this year, I went through our GitHub issue for the lack of the new resolver, and I clicked expand a zillion times, <laughs> and then I clicked through to all these auto-linked issues so that I could see, oh, wow, off here in 2017, there was a problem here, and in 2015, there was a problem here, and so on and so on, so I could amass this list of things that are broken that we will be fixing. So I'm sorry to have broken in, but I wanted to give people a sense that this is part of how you do the shoe leather work in case you need to do something like this in your community. 
So I want to get back to the question I had for you, Georgia, but I yeah. want to mention that I, I was you know, going through the resources and went through the survey recently, which I'll link to, and anybody you know wants to, to provide feedback, this is a really great, great way to be involved in that, and we'll definitely have links to get into it. But one of the things I thought was interesting is there's, hey, if you want to try this out and give us some feedback, mm-hmm. try, you know, here's some examples to try. And I was intrigued by the list. <laughs> you know, it started with like TensorFlow and uh, has like pandas and like you mentioned, cherry pie earlier. So six and cherry pie together. And then some of these other ones that are very specific, but then also just, you know, hey, try installing, try uninstalling, you know, using check and so forth. It sounds like kind of a neat list of, of kind of troubleshooting. And I'm guessing that's going to help you across, you know, a variety of the operating systems and different environments. Yeah, I think, and there's, you know, it's hard for us to test every environment that everyone has, right? Because so many, I think the other big thing is, the Python community is so diverse, right? Like there's so many people building so many amazing things in so many different contexts. And that's part of sort of another area of research that we're doing is trying to understand that better so that we understand what are common use cases and scenarios that people run into. Yeah, the combinations. Yeah, because I mean, there's traditional testing stuff of just like operating systems and versions of things. I know... One of my first jobs, I was working at a company um, where most of what we did was actually some, we did some like government contracting work. And part of our testing procedures when we were rolling out new software involved us testing so many versions of Windows because our customers, which were a lot of government offices were hadn't you know been allowed to upgrade yet right, right. there's yeah that happens <laughs> yeah it's really common i mean in a corporate environment and and especially in a government environment there's a lot of gates you have to pass before you're allowed to be on the latest and greatest and honestly even as like a personal user i'm not always going to upgrade to the most recent i mean i want to especially if it's like a security release but you know, it's always good kind of wait for the first patch with like a new version of Mac OS or Windows. Right. I do the same for my audio stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They have quirks and there's things that were missed and, you know, those come out in that next patch right away. Either It's hard to make sure that you're testing for all of those conditions, which is why it's great to have the community involved in that and also to help us understand, you know, some of that we can make sure we test for, but there's aspects of that, that it can be really particular to the way someone is using the tools that we might just like never have that full list, right? So it's as more as the more people we can get involved in the testing, the more we can understand what that diversity looks like, the better we can serve the community that's using. Yeah, I totally, I want to plus one to what Georgia just said and add that the more manual testing we get from our incredibly, incredibly varied user base, the more we can then lock in improvements with further automated tests once, you know, because we'll have a bug fix and we'll then add along with the bug fix a test to prove that the bug stays fixed, right? So this is uh, uh, manual testing and rewarding a bug doesn't just help for that bug right then for that user. It then helps us make a robust and lasting and consistent improvement in the product as it were over time. Yeah. And I would guess a, a core group of people that you want to hear from are those those people that are doing the open source projects mm-hmm. that are, you know, people are grabbing up for PyPI that you want to make sure that they're running all this stuff and testing. Unfortunately, I, I know that a lot of 
everybody, you know, you talked about funding and I've had that as a common theme recently, you know, a lot of open source projects, you know, this person might be working on it on their weekends or, you know, whatever. And so they're not able to try it out, but with, with such a big change in, in something like this and this resolver, this would be a really good time for them to absolutely definitely chime in definitely. <laughs> and uh, test it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we know that's, I, you know, the open source kind of lives and breathes on the, the range of people who are able to be contributors, right? Whether that's you as an individual in your volunteer time or just in your like hobby working with technology or you know, independent projects or people who are, funded as part of their jobs to contribute to open source. And yeah, it's, it's, but it's super helpful because anyone who can give us, anyone who gives us feedback, it's really, really useful to hear. Absolutely. And I, I, I do agree having an incredibly wide variety of users. One, let me, let me talk about a few of the categories of user who I would love for us to hear more from. One is maintainers of open source projects. Absolutely. Even if all you want to tell us is some users and I tried out the new PIP, we tried the beta, we used the new resolver flag, and everything was fine. We want to hear that. Please fill out the survey and tell us that. But another is, if you're listening to this and you don't think of yourself as a developer, yeah, you're a user. You use Python. Maybe you use it and maybe you do other stuff with it. Uh, maybe you aren't a developer yet. For whatever you use PIP for, if you use PIP, uh, we want to hear whether the new result will work for you as well. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another real Python video course. It's called A Beginner's Guide to PIP. So, following in the theme for this week, it's based on a real Python article by Isaac Rodriguez. And in the course, instructor Austin Sapalia covers the fundamentals of PIP the standard package manager for Python, which allows you to install and manage additional packages that are not part of the Python standard library. In the video course, you'll learn about installing additional packages not included with the standard Python distribution, finding packages published to the Python package index, PyPI, managing requirements for your scripts and applications, and uninstalling packages and their dependencies. I think it's a worthy investment of your time. This course is a great introduction for those who want to get started with PIP, and for those who want to understand more about what is happening when you install new packages into your environment. And like most of the video courses on Real Python, the course is broken into easily consumable sections, and it includes a shiny new transcript and closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the newly enhanced search tool on realpython.com. Going back to, the, to your background, uh, Georgia, you were talking about you know the UX and and creating that and you work for a company called Simply Secure is that right? Mm, yeah, that's correct. So how is your work on this different from what you're doing with Simply Secure? Yeah, so we so Simply Secure is a UX and design nonprofit and we when we are, were originally founded about six years ago, our sort of primary goal was to make security tools more usable. So hence where the name comes from. And we, over the years, we've expanded that to be more of a focus on not just security tools, but thinking about like security and privacy as core parts of the user experience as a whole. Because there's a lot of technology that people depend on that impacts them in situations where they might be, where their safety is at risk. So like, for example, 
Python, right, is built into so many tools, whether that's a secure messaging application or a VPN or, you know, a chat app, right, whatever that is. Python's actually a core technology in those tools. And so if we can help it, if we can work with the PIP team and the Python team to make that a more a better experience for developers, then we are more likely to have more trustworthy technology further down, like built on top of that, right? Closer to an end user using an application on their phone or their computer or whatnot. So yeah, so I think, you know, we work with lots of different projects and organizations. Um, In some cases, we're working directly with more sort of human rights technologies or like secure messaging apps, (laughs) like I mentioned. But I think what's really exciting about this is that, you know, if we can, I think what people don't realize is a lot of the challenges that we run into as everyday users of technology actually stem from the development environments being difficult for developers, right? And so many developers are, you know, self-taught, like coming in as new, like it's just a hugely growing area where things like usability and safety aren't necessarily a focus of people's experience, like getting involved in coding. So I think the more we can actually show that it's possible to make that better, the more that we can enable developers to be able to make good choices and have it be easy to do things and not have that be a place where they get stuck, like that benefits everybody further down, like on the, you know, who's nowhere near the coding, who's just in the, like, I just want it to work for me. I'm trying to send this message to someone. I'm trying to run this analysis, right? All that sort of, the sort of work uh, on the other end. Yeah, security's been kind of a background theme also for us. Lots of weird little stories over the last several months of, you know, sort of exploits and so forth in places that you don't normally think of them. And I can even think of, you know, uh, problems with PIP potentially where someone, you know, spells something wrong or that kind of like squatting, which I, I know that's not necessarily a subject for us here, but. Yeah, we, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to uh, share some stuff in the show notes about some of the work that we need to do, the work that we are doing and the work that we need to do further. Okay. Yeah. To help prevent typo squatting attacks and other you know, malware related stuff. I think that. One of the exciting things about Simply Secure doing this foundational research on the Python packaging tool chain as a whole is that it sets us up well for implementing some future improvements to things all along the tool chain, right? Including the developer upload tools that will help us make it so that when an end user downloads and installs a package, they have a lot more peace of mind that it is the same thing that the developer uploaded, uh, that it's verified, that they can check the providence of it and so on. So that's something that we can talk about in another show and that I'll also add uh, some more things to the show notes about. Yeah, I might have you come back to talk more security. That's been a theme that people have been wanting (laughs) to have on the show. So one of the things that I I thought was kind of interesting is you were talking about the idea of like, how do I present the errors or the the problems somebody might go through in installing and in this sort of, you know, just text-based medium and giving them usable information so that a user, an end user, or potentially a open source contributor or whatever can see enough information so they can maybe try to fix what happened. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm not sure what goes into that. Like, what what are the types of things you have to, you have to think about? Yeah, I mean, 
there's a few things, right? So let's say, I mean, first it helps to just go through the types of errors you know can happen, right? And if we know how to fix those errors, like, can we just tell people that directly? Okay. One thing we've been piloting at the moment is as part of the resolver being in beta, we have a prompt of like, if you are getting stuck here, like report an issue and and actually like get yourself into the GitHub queue and tell us what's going wrong because we haven't been able to give you good feedback yet. (laughs) Yeah, we've been thinking a bit on, you know, how can we help you? How can we give you um, actionable information in the moment related to what the error that you're seeing is? How can we make that clear enough that it's easy to disambiguate. I think, you know, I, I would definitely not refer to myself as a developer, but I'm definitely a tech savvy enough person that I've done some of my own command line work from time to time. I think everyone's like the bane of everyone's coding existence is when you get the error message of just like it failed and you have no information about why, right? So that's <laughs> it's the mysterious error that you have no, you're being given no hints. Like you don't even know where to start. <laughs> right. And so you, it's, you have to just figure out, you know, where can you start or, or figure out what you did last and what changed, right? Like how do we make troubleshooting easier? So what hints can we give you? And if we, if it's too complicated to put in just the command line feedback, you know, how can we get you to the right documentation to solve your problem or get you to the right place to tell us that nothing solved your problem? <laughs> So things like that, like what are the potential troubleshooting paths? What resources do we have? How much can we actually tell you in the moment so that you are able to just fix what you did, right? And aren't sort of left sitting there scratching your head being like, this error message really tells me absolutely nothing because <laughs> that is that is the opposite of what we want. Yeah. I've put a link in uh, that we can put in the show notes about we have just so massively improved thanks to the ux team we've so massively improved at least some of the error messages that people get at the most confusing deepest despairing moments that they might run into dependency resolution issues with pip um and i love that we were able to have the uh, and this is the, the ux team you know came up with this approach in collaboration with the developers have an error message that is concise but really info-packed and then link to a fairly detailed and really useful piece of documentation that lives on the web for more details and this piece of documentation then says look and it has this real friendly vibe to it right and says look you get an error and you might see something like this and so here's how this is working let me take it apart for you here are a few possible solutions that will depend on your use case gives you detail and and says okay and if none of this helps then go ahead and ask for help these other places and i think yeah giving people a little short error message in the command line yeah. and then a much longer version on the web that they can read and share with somebody else I, this is a something that i wish more command line pro- uh, programs would do yeah, and I think to to come back to your question about like what uh, to add a little bit more about what goes into that, right? So we understanding what the problems can be, and then honestly, we iterated on ideas and got feedback from people. So as we were understanding the error conditions that people could end up in, we drafted some text, and then we reached out to folks to say like, 
do you know, what do you think this means? <laughs> right. And then we made it better. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of that like iteration editing and, and feedback both from the developers and from so the maintainer team, the developers we're working directly with and with people who are users who have signed up as part of the, the survey or who, you know, responded to some of our uh, calls for outreach for people to participate. It's been so useful to have people working on this project who have a wide variety of levels of knowledge about what PIP is doing, why it is doing it, and whether it should be doing that at all. You know, we have people who have worked on this project as part of the paid funded project who are maintainers of PIP and who know the guts of it really inside and out. We have people working on it who, you know, are work in Python packaging, but didn't necessarily know PIP as well. We have people who know things about the broad scope of stuff. And then we have folks like Nicole, who has known some of the UX sides from the PyPI perspective for quite some time as one of the people who's worked on PyPI, but didn't necessarily know PIP as well. And then we have folks like Georgia and Bernard, user experience folks who are very skilled at user experience work and have worked with developers a lot, but brought a fresh perspective so that we could say, wait, why is this happening? And, you know, sometimes I was like, oh, right. They're asking, I, I had that, that phrase, you know, the curse of knowledge, maybe you've heard that phrase, as a project manager on this, who's been working on Python packaging since, what is it, 2017, sometimes I really needed that, you know, bump upside the head of, you know what? The fact that we're doing this particular thing this way does not make sense and let's change. <laughs> I really appreciate that. And uh, it's one of the wonderful things about getting lots of broad views on a team. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the, the timeline. I mentioned earlier that a version came out in June of PIP. And then I think we're currently on 20.2, but I'm not positive on that. And partly why you wanted to come on is there's going to be this changeover right, right now as I am using it. You need to ask to basically or use a flag to indicate that you want to use the new resolver, but that's going to flip-flop shortly. Is that right? Correct. Yes. So just to give people a little bit of historical perspective. Okay. PIP, you know, there's been a lot of releases. Um, when I look on PyPI and look at the history, I see that version 0.2 of PIP came out in 2008. Right. This is a project that has uh, a bit of a long history as projects go. And then a few years ago, we got into a cadence where, or maybe it was last year, uh, where we release point releases once a quarter. So okay. that means that you can expect a new, you know, substantial change to PIP four times a year. And okay. we generally release in January, April, July, and October. So I think perhaps what you were hearing about when you uh, were listening to another podcast in uh, June was you were hearing about the release that had come out in, in late April. Okay. Right now, we are funded for one year of some people's time. And that started in January and it's ending in December. So this is to... Uh, you know, do some work to build on a work that a lot, you know, a lot of volunteers did for, for several years, but this year we have this concentrated time, right? So over the course of the first half of the year, we were doing a lot of really foundational work and we released PIP 20.1 in April, which had sort of an alpha version of the resolver. We're like, you know, this is, this is, some people should test it, but it's not, it's really not ready for prime time. And then in July, we released PIP 20.2, 
And that has a beta version of the resolver, as you said, hid behind a flag. So right now, if you use you know pip install and then you use the dash dash use dash feature equals 2020 dash resolver flag then you'll be able to use the new the new behavior which a lot of people say solves a bunch of problems for them and but right now by default you're using the legacy resolver if you just type pip install name and package yeah in october we aim to release a version, well, I mean, we're going to release PIP 20.3 in October. And our current plan is that in PIP 20.3, just as you said, the new resolver will be on by default. And that means that our deprecation timeline is in PIP 20.3 next month, PIP will default to the new resolver. A user can opt out and choose the old resolver behavior using a different flag, which is dash dash use dash deprecated equals legacy dash resolver. And this is all in the documentation that I'm sure you'll be linking to. Right, right. In your show notes. And that will be the, you know, PIP 20.3 is set to be the last release of 2020. And then in 2021, in January, we are planning to release PIP 21.0, right? 21.0. And in that, PIP we hope would use the new resolver by default as it, you know, continuing to do that. And then the old resolver is no longer available. Okay. Fully deprecated. (laughs) So you have this three month period where if you need that escape hatch, you can use this flag to say, please use the deprecated legacy resolver while you're getting other things together, talking to upstreams, talking to other people in your organization and fixing things up. But then PIP 21.0, that option won't be available to you anymore. And that sort of ends the the round of, of funding that you have, um, getting you all the way to uh, version 21. Is that right? So the funding, currently our funding timeline is that we have some funding through the end of December. So uh, then it switches to, I mean, currently there are people who work on all parts of Python packaging who are volunteers. Yeah. And then currently, there are some people who are being funded to work on a few things, and, and PIP is, is one of them through this. And then depending on whether any uh, grants get approved and whether any corporate sponsorships come through and, and stuff like that, it could be the case that as of January 2021, there will be no one paid to work on any part of Python packaging. And so then it would be volunteers who are the ones in charge of the final deprecation of the old resolver and taking out that that option it's going to be a busy october with python 3.9 coming out i guess early october and then this one kind of coming out and definitely lots of testing to do for individuals well uh i I hope that it's as as seamless as possible i think uh, i can't speak of course for the core python folks but i know that we're trying to we're trying to make it as as seamless as possible and as easy as possible to, to do that testing yeah well, I, I'm, I'm sorry to sigh there. I think one of the things that I'm just going to be candid here. One of the things that's frustrating about this process is I think that anyone in the world feels frustrated when they feel responsibility without power. Yeah. Right. When you feel responsible for something and yet you don't have the power to do it or to do it right. And there are so many millions of people who depend on Python, who depend on the Python programming language and the Python ecology. And 
we do not have the marketing budget to put shiny polished ads in front of all of them. Right. We don't have the capacity as a team to do all of the technical work that needs doing plus at least that much again in publicity. Right. And so we know that as of mid-October, it's going to be the, the case that there are some people out there who are our customers, right? Our users, our clients, who have a rough time because despite the fact that we have been trying to put out word in all these different channels, it didn't just it just didn't get to them that there was a change coming and that they had a chance to avert some headache by by testing the beta soon. And that's something that affects me, right? It makes me feel bad. And it makes, sometimes it wakes me up early because I have some new idea about how to publicize this. Right. Because I would prefer that October pass really without any incident. And people say, ho-hum, kind of like people prep so much. People put a bunch of work into preparing for the year 2000 problem. And it's because they put so much work into mitigating and rewriting and migrating that mostly everything worked. This is, I've heard, called the paradox of prevention. That if you put a lot of work in, then <laughs> people say, well, why did we even do that? Yeah. So I would prefer that. <laughs> I would prefer that people spread the word, be aware about, including to people who use PIP but don't even think of themselves as Python folks, right? There's people who use PIP just to download some application, like YouTube-DL. They, they may use PIP to do things, even though they're not really doing it that much or any Python development. And so hoping, hoping to get the word out as, as soon as possible because, right, uh, we have some funded time but, and we would be, it would be really great if we could really use most of the rest of the time for the rest of the year to help improve PIP further and not necessarily, I hope, um, have to uh, deal with as much heartache and, and sort of fixing and, and releasing a bunch of point fixes to to deal with problems that people bring up. Although, of course, if that's what we need to do, we'll do it. That's kind of been a bit of a theme. Also, I've been trying to, to talk to a variety of people about like, okay, well, what's, what's involved in trying to get more, more funding and, you know, on, onto these types of projects and it's something I talked to, to Russell about, but I've talked to a couple other people recently about it. And I understand, you know, the PSF struggles with this themselves. And, <laughs> and so it's, Kind of one of these interesting things because Python's such a such a huge, I don't know, kind of project overall, you know, an overarching thing that is used by so many companies, and it's such a, a weird, this weird kind of thing where you just sort of assume it's going to be there, <laughs> and I think that's kind of a, a bad, you know, thing, especially for you know these large corporations that might be using it. I, I talked to Michael Kennedy on a recent episode, and we dove a little bit into it himself. Uh, do you think there are you know, I know this is a sidetrack, but what are strategies that, that have been passed around to try to get more of that type of engagement from companies and corporations to, to help with funding these types of projects? Georgia, would you like to take that first? Yeah, sure. I was going to say, I'm happy to jump in for a sec. I'm one of the, I think there's a lot of conversation. I mean, I'm sh this has been a conversation for ages and ages, I think, with open source, but I think it's become something that is more fresher in people's minds as we've just yeah. kind of understood how how much this can be a challenge for people. There, there are so many projects that people depend on where there's like one maintainer who is doing it in their 
spare time, right? And and just like people not realizing sort of the the dependency networks that exist. And so I think there's been a lot of conversation over the last couple of years to help build visibility around those challenges. And there's things like the maintainers conference that I think has been, I don't know how long it's been going on, but I think that has grown in awareness. And similarly, there's a community that is around sustaining open source software called Sustain that has an annual conference that I was at earlier this year, which was super interesting. They have a podcast as well. Um, it might be interesting to do a crossover episode with um, cool. with the Sustain podcast. But I think, you know, some interesting efforts that have come up over the last couple of years, one and one of the people who's core involved in the Sustain community um, is one of the founders of this, but Open Source Collective. They, this is a platform that is actually one of the things they're aiming to do is make it easier for companies to get funding into the open source projects they depend on. So they are both acting as, um, they're providing the ability to be a fiscal host for some projects because actually, yeah, Open Collective, that's, um, thank you. <laughs> I was like, thank you, Sumita. They, um, they're providing a platform that enables projects that might not have the right entity status to take funding so they can actually act as a fiscal sponsor for projects, which is one of the types of problems that can happen in this space. And then they are working with big companies to help them enable giving to the all the many potential projects that they depend on. So that's, and there's a number of organizations that are in this ecosystem, but I think that's been one where there's been a huge amount of adoption, actually, even in just the last year, where we're now seeing people do more regular giving kind of like, you know, rather than like, oh, we need a Kickstarter to make this thing happen this year. You know, what does it mean to actually say, I'm going to commit to monthly putting some amount of money towards this thing that is really important to me. And that's something that's, you know, more sustainable for everyone. So how can we actually have the dollars directly follow the paths of the tools that we are using? And I think that's, that's been a big interest area. I think the other, you know, and I'll, I'll pass it over to Sumina for this, but in particular, as a nonprofit, we're always looking at grants and <laughs> things like that or opportunities to get other sort of large amounts of funding. But those are, those are more challenging to get. And I think particularly more challenging for um, software projects because there aren't a lot of funders that are looking at that space in that way. And I, I mean, Sumina, it'd be great if you want to, I'll hand it off to you to talk about you know, how you approach writing these grants and the opportunities and things like that. that Sure. I'll talk very briefly because I know we're coming up right up towards the end of the hour. I have now helped write a few grant proposals or similar things for the Python Software Foundation to submit. As a nonprofit, the Python Software Foundation is eligible to receive a, a variety of kinds of funds from foundations and similar. And I have found that if we can clearly say, this is the impact we're going to have, this is the credibility that we have because we've run projects like this before, and this is what it will take, and we've thought through what it will take to do this project and therefore have this impact on on users and on the wider ecosystem, then depending on the funder, that can be a winning move. Now, because of my experiences doing this, I thought, okay, it would be great if more Python projects had the know-how on how to do this, had resources to help apply for funds or speak to 
companies and say, hey, if you sponsor us, this is the thing we can do and so on. So I led the way in creating some resources such as in the Python packaging world, the list of fundable packaging projects, projects that we already have technical consensus for, we already have community consensus for, they're doable, we know what it takes to do them. And we've already used that list to help apply for some things, uh, such as the dependency resolver work. And I also co-founded the Project Funding Working Group, which aims to collect resources and help projects apply for significant amounts of money or get them not just from nonprofits, but also from companies and sponsors. So I have some links I've provided there. I think Tidelift is also a fairly important player in this space, trying to make things sustainable by recruiting not just maintainers of open source projects, but also selling subscriptions to companies and being able to offer those companies a fairly, I think, viable proposition of saying you will have assurance the same way that a vendor would provide assurance that the things you depend on aren't about to fall apart. I do a tiny bit of consulting for Tidelift. I am a little bit biased here, but also I thought Tidelift was a very reasonable idea even before they uh, started doing that with me. I also want to point out that I, Sumana Hariharishwara, am a consultant and I'm a project manager for hire. I provide short-term targeted, open source related project management and related services. So recently I did a little bit of grant writing with an organization and helped them improve their grant proposal so that uh, it's more likely that they'll get a chunk of money that they can do some fairly important improvements with. I've also done things like with just about 15 hours of volunteering on a project, help them get the new release out the first in something like a year and a half. And I actually wrote a blog post about that and I've, I've linked that. So I think that it's, there's a variety of different ways that organizations can support the libraries and applications that they depend on. And any organization that isn't doing so, uh, at, at some point, they sort of have to ask themselves, well, are you happy about having built what you're doing on a foundation that is eroding out from under you, right? It's only a matter, I think, of self-preservation to try to preserve the things that you depend on. Yeah, that's great. I guess as we kind of start to wrap up a little bit, I'd like to learn a little bit more about how people can help out with this project oh, yes. and help out with the type of research that you're, you're looking for here for helping with the resolver. And yeah, that sounds great. You know, what are some courses of actions that people can take here? Yeah, I, um, there's a recent blog post, which I think we'll include in the show notes that also end up page on the, um, on the documentation pages for PIP that has all of the current open surveys <laughs> that people, we'd love for people to contribute and fill out. And one of those is also adds you to a list of folks that we can follow up with for interviews. So that's one of the best ways to get involved, like sign up there and then we will email you and set up a time and you can tell us all of the things you love and all the things you hate. And we would love to hear it. <laughs> and you're, you're looking for people that are not necessarily just doing the simple stuff that I'm doing. Uh, you know, it could be people that are doing continuous in integration or more complex kind of testing situations. Where, yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. Okay. I would say everything. I mean, I think the, you know, like we were talking about earlier, the, the Python community is so diverse that we are really interested in making sure that we capture that diversity in the people that we are talking to. So yeah, we're particularly interested in 
uh, in the range. <laughs> Definitely, if you're a, if you're everything from um, you know you use Python libraries to make robots or art to uh, um, uh, you know hobby projects on the weekends to continuous integration to complex data science, like mm-hmm. come come tell us everything you want to tell us. Uh, we want to listen. So <laughs> right. I think that's definitely, uh, and if, you know, if you don't have time for an interview or that sort of thing feels stressful or like you're just super over video calls, which is like legit in this pandemic, <laughs> uh, we've got, we've got surveys that are, you know, can be passive and we're going to keep sharing those on social media and um, adding those to the documentation page that is like the hub for the surveys. So we have some more, targeted things about like PIP functionality. We want to understand PIP users better, like I've been mentioning, digging in on how PIP as a packaging framework differs from other packaging frameworks and sort of what that looks like, like how PIP fits in the packaging ecosystem. That's something that we're, we want to dig into a bit to kind of see where uh, are there nuances to the way PIP works that make it confusing because people are working from experience with other tools, you know, where are those where are those sort of disparities? Yeah. So that's a great place to get involved. And that, yeah, we'd love, we'd love to hear from folks. There's some specific surveys about the resolver as well as points to like where to fill out GitHub issues about the problems that people are running into as well. All right. Great. I don't know if Sumana wants to add anything. <laughs> yeah. Sumana, we get that stuff? I think I feel like you covered it. Okay. Awesome. So I have these couple weekly questions. And the first one is, what are you excited about in the world of Python? It could be like an event or a package or a code editor or a project that you're interested in. George, you want to go first? I, I mean, I've been really, I wish one of the things I, I've been seeing some of the recent like events that people are running and right. I really, I don't have like one particular one in mind, but I feel like I, over the next couple of months, I want to make sure that we participate in one of the upcoming events that people are doing, partly because I'm just really interested in how people are doing organizing when we can't all be in the same place. Uh, and yeah. to see how the Python community in particular is doing that. And it's just a great way for us to connect with lots of lots of folks. So I don't have a particular event, but I will I will use that as a prompt to say as well, if there's an event that you are putting together and you would like us to come, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, there you we'd, go. Love to, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah. <laughs> so Great. Yeah. So Manon, you got one? Sure. And I'll mention, by the way, I want to thank everybody who either saw my talk at Pi Ohio about applying for grants uh, to fund open source work, or who's about to see Christina Munoz's talk on a similar topic at Pi Gotham next month, um, or who participated in our packaging sprint uh, remotely, of course, at EuroPython a little while ago. So I've, I think I've participated in a little bit of stuff. And Georgia, I hope that you get a, a chance sometime soon to really enjoy the Python community. Man, we, we were going to all get together at PyCon this year in Cleveland. And I've grieved that in the past already, but now the yeah. grief is a little bit fresh. <laughs> I know. I will say that a, a thing I'm excited about in the world of Python also has to do with events, sort of. So a few years ago... I thought, you know, I've given a fair number of technical talks. I know how to do that. I'm really interested in exploring what else we can do with conference talks when we remember that they are also theater. And so I started writing and performing in plays. 
And you can look at the plays that I co-wrote and co-starred in at pivideo.org. Uh, I did two uh, in two successive years at Pi Gotham. One was a play about how code review works or doesn't in an organization and the effect that it has. Because code review is a very vulnerable, emotional moment, really, right? Someone's judging your stuff. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> then the next year, uh, my friend Jason and I, well, a few friends and I, uh, put together 18 short plays about various aspects of programming, being a programmer, Python, stuff like that. I demonstrated sort of a visual analogy of how beautiful soup works by peeling some cling wrap off of some poster board. It was cool. And you can watch that as well. And then I thought, well, I'm probably not the best playwright who's interested in this. So I co-founded an arts festival. And last year at PyCon 2019, there was a, an arts festival at PyCon called the Art of Python. And it was really great. And then I wasn't going to run it this year. I was passing the baton to some other people. And it didn't happen. But I hope that whatever shape PyCon takes next year, you know, virtual, in-person, hybrid, I hope that we can revive that. that. That's something I'm excited about is more performing art and similar about the experience of being a technologist. Yeah, that totally excites me. Fantastic. Thank you. You know, I'm a musician and do like video and that's always been the side I kind of came in from technology and that intersection with with Python really is super interesting to me. So I definitely want to check out that stuff and I'll share all the links to it. So the second question is, what is something that you want to learn next? George, you want to go first on that one? Yeah, it's a good question. I hmm, <laughs> I mean, what I... I want to get better at updating the PIP documentation. <laughs> sure. There's a lot of learning but, involved there. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just like getting a handle on it. But no, I mean, I I have a side hobby of liking to do a lot of work with data. So I, one of the things uh, one of the things that we've been doing as part of this work is we've been using various survey tools. So um, we have some data that's like in line survey, some that's in crowd signal, some that's in Google Forms. And actually Prajun, who's the developer who's um, working one of the developers we're working closely with, recently wrote a Python script to help process that data and make it like better formatted. So that's something I've been meaning to look at and then see if we can use that better in a very like meta way on our survey. Cool. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, data scripts are definitely a thing that I have a personal passion for, I would say. <laughs> yeah. And since you mentioned Georgia, I want to take the second to shout out to the rest of our team who have been fantastic, right? Pradin Gidam, Paul F. Moore, Suping Chung, uh, developers on this. Uh, we got a little help for it as well from Ilan Schnell. Um, and then the UX team via Simply Secure, of course, George Bullen and Nicole Harris and Bernard Tires. I'm the project manager on that, and Ernest W. Durbin III is our PSF liaison. And there's a ton of volunteers who have been helping in, in various ways as contributors. You know, this is surveys, um, you know, filling out surveys, doing interviews, giving us bug reports and feedback and patches and code review and, and all, um, all sorts of stuff. So I want to thank everybody who's made this as possible as it has been and, and helps drive towards success. As for what I would like to learn in Python next. I am in the process of migrating my blog. My blog is currently in a pretty old, slightly bespoke blogging system that my spouse wrote 
something like, you know, more than a decade ago. And now that I have a business website and I'd like to set up a blog on that and I'd like to have some features I don't currently have on my personal blog. Uh, I just had a conversation today with a consultant that I might be going with and we might be moving to Django. And the last time that I played with Django was years ago. So I'm looking forward to really understanding better the things that Django can do and, you know, in, in consultation with uh, somebody else who is much better at it than me. So I think that might be the best of all worlds, right? Is that I can learn as I want, but also I'm not just the person who makes the critical path all blocked. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan. Real Python's completely based on it. And so I've been using it even more as a tool <laughs> over the last several months as we've set up, you know, not only to do this podcast, but we've uh, recently added transcripts to our to our videos and and all that stuff is happening and being managed through that whole CMS. And it's a, it's a neat mm-hmm. platform. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I've played with it in the past. I've used it in the past, but uh, seeing an incredibly fresh, modern installation customized to exactly what I need, that's going to be real exciting, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I really want to thank you both for coming on the show and sharing all this knowledge with us. And yeah. And again, We'll have a huge list of all these links uh, for for what you guys can kind of check out and please get involved with uh, what's happening with the Resolver and provide some some feedback on those surveys. And thanks again, Georgia and Sumana. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us, Christopher. Thanks for having us. I want to thank Sumana and Georgia for coming on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to The Real Python Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast in your favorite player. And if you like the show, Leave us a five-star rating and a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.